Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of being here to worship you, and we know that when we open up your word, we are also worshiping you. I pray that we might have soft and tender hearts to your word this morning. May you, Father, allow us to contemplate deeply on the things that we're going to learn together so that we would be people who apply your word to our lives. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. As you know, we're still in our series, summer series, through the book of, through the Psalms. And um, we are in Psalm 100 this morning. Two preliminary um, observations about Psalm 100 as you're turning there. One is, if you notice the heading, it says that it's a psalm for thanksgiving. That is very unique to this psalm. It's the only psalm that has that particular heading. So it's specifically designed to move the hearts of God's people towards corporate, collective uh, thanksgiving. And two, as I read the psalm, just notice that there is a twofold call to praise God in verses 1 and 2 and then verse 4. And then there is a twofold reason or motivation given for why we should praise God in verse 3 and verse 5. So this is Psalm 100. A psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. This is, like I said, a psalm of thanksgiving. And Psalm 100 really falls in a very strategic place uh, here in the Psalter. Because the focus, if you've read the Psalms, if you're familiar even with the Psalms that came before Psalm 100, Psalms 95 through 99, really the focus of those Psalms is on proclaiming God as King. And then from that understanding of God as King, Responding to worship because he is king. And so Psalm 100 really is, is kind of the pinnacle of these psalms that are focusing on the kingship of God and our response, our rightful response of worship. But it gets even deeper than that. And the other psalms, to some extent or another as well, to the very heart that drives our worship, our praise, our adoration of God as God's people. You know, pretty soon, in a few months, we're going to be celebrating a holiday that we know as Thanksgiving. And of course, none of us are really excited about the holiday uh, uh, Halloween, right? But Thanksgiving is one that we really look, uh, look forward to because of all the wonderful delicacies, right? The food and the sweets and all of that. Some of us are dreading that time, right? Because of our dieting and exercise and all of that. But we love Thanksgiving. And what do we do normally during Thanksgiving? It's a time where we pause to reflect upon um, what we're thankful for. To utter those praises. To count our blessings, so to speak. And of course, we know that as believers, we don't need to wait for a holiday called Thanksgiving to thank the Lord. Because we can do that all day long, every day of the year, um, as a way of life, right? But sadly, for many people, Thanksgiving holidays are the only times that they are actually articulating Thanksgiving for the goodness of God in their lives. That's pretty sad. You know, I read a uh, funny 
Speaking of Thanksgiving, a funny um, Peanuts cartoon in the paper a while back. And the cartoon pictured Charlie Brown bringing out Snoopy's dinner on Thanksgiving Day. Maybe you've read this before. But it was just his usual dog food in a bowl. Snoopy took one look at the food and said, This isn't fair. The rest of the world today is eating turkey with all the trimmings, and all I get is this dog food. Because I'm a dog, that's why. All I get is dog food. And Snoopy stood there contemplating and stared at his food for a moment. And then he said this, Well, I guess it could be worse. I could be a turkey. (laughs) In other words, we can always find something to thank God about, right? In his case, the fact that he's alive as an animal. We can always find things to thank God about. Uh, This reminds us of uh, the importance of just having a heart of gratitude before the Lord that leads to the worship of God. And that's what Psalm 100 is about. One commentator said this about Psalm 100, quote, Worshippers must live under the constant theme of thanksgiving to God. Thankful people are worshiping people, end quote. Think about that. Conversely, if we are not thankful, we won't worship God at all. Or our worship will be very cold and very lukewarm, right? We are not thankful people. And there are various reasons, beloved, why we might not be thankful people who are driven to praise and worship God. Sometimes, for many of us, we are so weighed down with the trials and the troubles of life that feeling so feeling hemmed in on both sides, so to speak, we, we have a difficult time seeing how God could be good to us in the midst of those trials and troubles. So we aren't thankful and we are not driven to worship. For other people, maybe there's sin in their life. Maybe they are hiding some sin or they are coddling sin in their life. And sin, more than anything else, has a way of hindering, of of being an obstacle to a heart of thanksgiving, right? For other people, maybe it's that you are not saved. If you characteristically are not a thankful person, where God is not even in in your thoughts, where you are not even bringing the truth of who God is and what He's done to bear upon the things that you're going through as a way of life. Maybe you need to ask yourself some harder questions. Am I even saved? Maybe you've been to church for many years. Maybe you've been around God's people for a long period of time. Maybe you've heard message after message after message. Even messages about giving thanks to the Lord. And yet you are not characteristically a thankful person. You're always grumbling. You're always complaining. You're always finding the negative uh, the, the negative, uh, negative stuff in anything. These are all problems that hinder our thanksgiving and therefore our worship. Well, this psalm helps us, beloved, with this. It helps us cultivate a heart of gratitude that leads to heartfelt worship. And here's what we see in this psalm. What we see in this psalm is that our memory of God who He is and what He's done should stir up melody in our hearts that leads to praising God. Listen to this again. Our memory of God, who He is and what He's done, should stir up melody in our hearts that leads to singing and leads to praising God. In other words, the more that you are gripped by the person of who God is, then you're going to be moved as you're gripped by His person to worship from a heart of gratitude for all that He's done in your life. That's what this psalm is all about. Grateful worship by the people of God. And we find, I want to highlight three aspects here from this psalm very briefly in our time this morning of this grateful worship that this psalm emphasizes. 
I want you to notice, first and foremost, the summons here to grateful worship. There is a summons or a call to grateful worship. It's a twofold call in verses 1 and 2 and then verse 4. You know, uh, our brother Ian, who leads our, our band up here, our worship team, every Sunday morning, he opens up our time in the singing of praises with a call to worship, right? He might read a scripture. He might exhort us. Maybe a reflection from God's word. He calls, he calls upon us to, to reflect upon truth concerning God so that we might come into his, his presence with the right kind of hard attitude and exuberance perhaps. He is, he is uh, calling us to worship. And that's really, really biblical. This is one example here of the fact that all of the earth in verse 1 is called upon by the psalmist to shout unto the Lord. To praise Him. To worship Him. And He does this throughout the psalm with seven imperatives. Seven commands given in Psalm 100 that call upon us, summon us to worship. Notice verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Verse 2. Come before Him with joyful singing. Verse 3, know that the Lord Himself is God. Verse 4, enter His gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks to Him, verse 4. Bless His name. All of these commands or imperatives emphasize that all human beings, He says all of the earth in verse 1, meaning all people are under obligation to pledge allegiance and devotion to God because He is the King of the universe. All of these commands... All of these things that we ought to practice, these actions, are befitting royalty. God is king, says the psalmist. Therefore, verse 1, shout joyfully. That's a, a homage shout, a paying tribute to a king with exuberance and praise and reverence and admiration and awe and respect for our great God because He is king. Shout joyfully to Him. We've seen this in movies, haven't we? Where a king or a a military victor appears before the people or enters a city. And people might shout in that movie, long live the king, long live the king. And they're celebrating this victor or this king who is coming amongst them as, as royalty. And they're saying, long live the king, celebrating his presence amongst them. That's the idea here. That's the idea. The psalm is summoning all people to celebrate the king. Now the emphasis here is on corporate worship. That when the people of God come together for corporate worship, that we ought to be celebrating who God is and what He has done. But He's summoning all people to worship also as a a lifestyle, a way of life. And I get this from the word translated in verse 2, serve, which can also throughout the Old Testament appear as worship or be translated as worship or serve in verse 2. It's a play on words. That can be translated worship or adoration. And it refers both to deeds of service and public corporate acts of service. In other words, worship is a way of life. It's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. We worship God privately in our service. We worship God in our obedience, in our kind deeds done towards other people. And we worship God publicly in corporate worship when we gather together on Sunday mornings or in other small groups In the context of our church. It's a beautiful picture. All of life is worship. All of life is worship. All creatures and especially human beings, beloved. Every single one of you sitting in this auditorium this morning. Were created for worship. 
And like magnets, our hearts are drawn to objects of worship. We are drawn to worship. And the only question for every human being born into this world, past, present, or future, is who or what do you worship? What do you value? Or who do you value? What do you love? What do you cherish? What consumes your thoughts, takes your time, drives your passions? What takes up your resources? If you answer some of these questions rightly and honestly, then you're going to get the answer to what you, what or who you worship. Some of us worship money. Some of us worship possessions. Some of us worship career or success. Some of us worship self-image or popularity or notoriety. Some of us worship sex. Some of us worship relationships. Some of us worship family or marriage even. To the point where th- when things are not going well in those contexts, then we are robbed of our joy and we don't worship God supremely, even in the midst of those relationships. We're all so different, and yet all of these things are things that we worship. And yet the Bible says that every human being was created for God. For God. For the glory of God. For the worship of God. And to not live for the singular purpose of glorifying God and worshiping God and praising God and adoring God is to live in rebellion against your maker and to be in mutiny against your maker, you see. Because he made you. This is what Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following speaks about. There Paul exhorts about the importance of preaching the gospel unashamedly. And then he begins by saying the whole world is under the wrath of God, the present wrath of God in their ungodliness and wickedness. And the greatest way that this is the most basic way that the world is in rebellion against God in Romans 1 is that they do not acknowledge God or give thanks to him. They don't worship him. They don't give him thanks. You want to know what the problem, beloved, is with our country more than anything else? is that God has given America over to the consequence of her rejection of the one true God as king. That's the problem with our country. And then that's been, we've seen how that's been manifested in so many, many things, right? And so all peoples here are summoned to grateful worship. Listen, the reason why, if you're a believer this morning sitting in here, Why God saved you, He saved you so that you would worship Him. In spirit and in truth. Internally and according to that which is true, according to His word and who He is. Are you a genuine worshiper of God? Is worship, even corporate worship, on a Sunday morning to use an example, is corporate worship a priority for you? Do you look forward to worshiping God with the saints in light of all that God has done for you? And maybe there are some of you here this morning who have not bowed the knee to the king. And according to Psalm 2, the way that you can begin to worship God truly in a way that honors him is by bowing the knee to the only savior of the world who is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Psalm 2. You must kiss the son. You must bow to the son of God, the one who went to the cross to pay for your sins. You must trust in him. And that's how you begin a life of genuine worship that pleases the Lord, right? By bowing to the one true king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that God doesn't just want some external ritual, some 
stoic approach to our worship. And what I mean is that we were created to worship God is obviously something that we see so clearly, not only in Psalm 100, but all over the word, that we are called to worship God is one thing, but God cares about how you and I approach his presence, how we live before him, how we even come Sunday mornings to our corporate worship matters to the Lord. And so I want you to see, secondly, the posture of grateful worship, the posture of grateful worship. This psalm is drenched if you will notice, with words like shout joyfully in verse 1. And then in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Verse 4, enter His gates with thanksgiving. His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. All of these words in this language move us from accepting this, this posture of dead or dull worship, beloved, to exuberance and expression in our worship. In other words, the language of Psalm 100 emphasizes that people are to approach the Lord in an in, in expression, with showing the happiness and the joy of the Lord in your hearts. That's what these words call for, that we ought to approach God with joy and gladness and exuberance. And that's to be genuine, of course, from the inside out because you know who your God is and you're so grateful and thankful to Him and you can't wait to express exuberance before Him and with God's people. You can't wait to do this. Now, I can hear and I've heard the objections in the past. Brother, you gotta, we always got to be careful, though. What about, I mean, we don't want to become charismatic, right? We don't want to become Pentecostal, I've heard even people say. As if to, to mean that anybody who raises their hand genuinely from the heart in the worship of God or anyone who cries out, Amen, or preach it, brother, or anything like that, all of a sudden, you're some charismatic. Thank you. Woo! I love hearing some feedback, beloved. As long as that feedback is motivated by a heart that is just consumed and captivated by the person of God. Amen? Our hearts should cry out with gladness and joy and exuberance because of that. And so what we see in this psalm is that joy and gladness and exuberance do not exclude reverence or seriousness for the Lord. And so what's up with some of you who have this, who worship with some stoic, joyless, expressionless posture continually in your worship? I understand that everybody's different. I understand that, that we don't always, not everybody is going to express the joy of the Lord in the same way. But beloved, we are called to express happiness, to smile once in a while, right? To be moved in our affections internally because of who God is, to worship Him exuberantly and in an excited fashion. That's what the language here calls us to. The language in Psalm 100 also emphasizes our delighting in worship. The fact that we desire to worship. You don't find in Psalm 100 a, a spirit of reluctance and, and drudgery and praise, but passion in praising God. Inflamed by the person of who God is. That's what you find in Psalm 100. But some of us have such a bad attitude and are so negative whenever we gather for corporate worship. What a drag to come again. How inconvenient. 
How selfish of the elders to change the time of the corporate worship service to 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Who wakes up that early on Sundays? There's football games for crying out loud going on on Sunday mornings. But whatever else is going on right now. Now I have to wake up earlier on Sundays and have to go to church earlier for worship. (laughs) We can have that kind of an attitude even if we don't express it that way. You know who you are. Why do they have to do things that way? You know, we have more critics in churches all around America, Christian churches, than worshipers. People coming in and using language like, what did you think about today's worship service? Oh, I don't know. I didn't really like the the music. It's not contemporary enough. It's not all hymns, the only godly way to do things. I didn't really like the sermon. didn't like the guy up there. I don't like the fact that they remind me to give every Sunday morning. I don't know. What did, what did you think? Listen, I ask you, beloved, since when is worship, especially corporate worship on Sunday mornings, about you? Since when is it about me? We are not the audience of corporate corporate worship. Who is the audience? God himself. And he looks directly into our hearts and he wants to know that we are joyful and glad to be here because he is great and he's good. That's why he wants us to be here. Maybe I'm missing something in Psalm 100 or these, all of these psalms that we've been looking at, but I don't see me in this text as the audience of, of worship. I don't see it anywhere. Do you see it anywhere? I see that I am to be passionate for the Lord and come with that kind of an attitude. Beloved, God cares more about your heart attitude and posture in worship than just showing up on a Sunday morning, simply going through the motions or just being forced to come to church because you have to, because your parents want you to just come to church. Check your heart and examine your heart. Remember Mary and Martha? Remember that? Jesus was his disciples visits Mary and Martha, I believe in Luke chapter 10. And uh, Martha, the older sister, is running around all over the place, making preparations for Jesus and the disciples and all of that, which we would understand. And Martha is running around doing that. All the while, her younger sister, Mary, where was she at? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his every word, captivated by Jesus Christ, worshiping the Lord, allowing Jesus to minister to her at that moment through his word. And Martha comes and complains at Jesus, even confronts him, says, Lord, tell her to help me. And what does Jesus answer? Martha, Martha, you're so anxious. You're so vexed, stressed out. You're a stressed out lady right now. Mary, Mary has chosen the good thing which will not be taken away from her. What was that good thing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, allowing Jesus to minister to her, right? Mary was worshiping the Lord. She understood the priority and the right posture of worship. What about you, beloved? What's your attitude or posture when you gather with God's people for corporate worship? What is it? Do you look forward to it? Or are you negative? complaining, grumbling, and expressing that? Or are you just indifferent, lethargic, complacent, 
Coming passively, not preparing your heart to be with the God's people and to worship our great King. I think that this psalm calls upon us to challenges us to examine ourselves. And so we are summoned here to a joyful and heartful posture of grateful worship. But you know what I love about God's Word? That over and over again, God gives us commands to obey in His Word, but He gives us motivation and reason to obey His Word, right? And ultimately, that's love for Him. And so we see, thirdly, the motivation for worship given to us in verse 3 and verse 5. This is the most important thing that I want you to take away from our time this morning. That if you are going to be a person who, who manifests, shows heartfelt worship before the Lord, you must be moved from the inside the more that you understand who God is and what He has done. That must be the motivation for our worship. The psalm calls on us to worship, but the psalm gives us reasons why we should do so in verses 3 and 5. Again, the, the memory of God stirs melody in the hearts of God's people, leading to praises and leading to worship, right? And so notice, God himself is the motivation for our worship in verse 3. It's because of who God is that we worship with a grateful heart. No, look at verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. When he says there, know that the Lord himself is God, he's not simply suggesting that the Lord is God. If I were to say to my, to my dear wife, honey, know that I love you. Or to a friend, friend, know that I love you. Know that I care for you. I am not presenting to them the possibility of the fact that I love them, right? I'm not making a suggestion to them. I'm making a declaration. I'm confessing to them, no, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that I love you, that I care for you. That's the idea here in verse 3. He's declaring, confessing the following truths about God as motivation for praising God. And so why should we worship God? Notice in verse 3 first, because the Lord himself is God. Because he's God. And there is no other God. He is the one true God of Scripture. He is Yahweh. He alone is God, and everything that we, come, that we have comes from Him. He is supreme. There is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. And then he builds upon that. Second line of verse 3, It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. I prefer how the NIV and ESV translates this. It is he who has made us and we are his. Meaning he owns us. He made us. We belong to him. There is no creature who has been born into this world who is autonomous. We all are dependent upon our creator. He owns you. He owns you. And then look further in the third line of verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We've seen that beautiful language before in Psalm 23, if you remember, of God as our shepherd and we his people as his sheep. The fact that he is our gentle, caring protector and provider. God cares for us. He's our caretaker. He provides for us. He protects us. We might say that in one sense the whole world 
experiences the care and provision of the Lord. That's what we, we call God extending his common grace to people, regardless of the fact that they are rejecting Jesus Christ. He is gracious to people who are unloving and who reject his authority over them and his love for them. But in a fuller sense, God is only shepherd to those who know him, to those who have a relationship with him by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says that we believers belong to Christ. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God with our body. What price was that? The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, right? And by faith, we are united to that sacrifice in a saving way. What we see here, beloved, is that knowledge of God precedes grateful worship. Our memory of God's supremacy, that He alone is God, that He created us, that He's our shepherd, should motivate melody in our hearts, leading to exuberant worship in each of our lives. This is why our songs, and I appreciate Ian and the worship team, and Tim Adams in the past, and those who have come before us, who are, uh, the songs are always rich, theologically rich, with the triune person of God, and God's promises, and God's word, and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because our hearts, beloved, as we sing these beautiful truths in these songs, our hearts are moved towards a genuine worship, singing and praising God and blessing His holy name. Amen? God's people love to be saturated with the truth of God. Also notice we worship and are motivated to exuberant worship because of who God is, also because of who of what God has done. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. Back in verse 3, we saw the absolute authority and the power of God, of God as God and creator, and therefore we are to be submissive to Him, to worship Him as God. But verse 5 emphasizes God's grace and His goodness for His people, if you notice. The fact that the Lord, verse 5, is good. That motivates us towards worship. The Lord is good, beloved. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, says the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 8. From the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, what do we see repeated over and over after certain days and, and certain uh, uh, aspects of God's creation? We see that, it, that everything that God created was good. And indeed, when He created human beings made in His image, it was very good, wasn't it? God is good. He's good. He created a good creation. It's sin that corrupted it. In Acts chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, it says that God does good to the whole world, even the nations who have gone their own ways. In James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it says that, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, i.e. God, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And in that context, he's making the point that God only gives good gifts. God is never, ever, ever, no matter how much you try to search for him in evil, he's never, ever, ever the author or originator of evil. He's only good. He only acts for the benefit of his people. Romans 8.28, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Amen? God is good. God is love. Verse 5, His loving kindness is everlasting. 
We've seen this beautiful word in the Hebrew, loving kindness, the word hesed, which refers to God's covenant love for his people. It emphasizes the fact that God's love is loyal, that God's love is unwavering. He is committed to his people. He is steadfast, unwavering in his love. Beloved, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that you could ever do if you are in Christ to no longer be loved by God. He loves you as he loves his own son. His love is everlasting no matter what happens with the world. No matter what difficulties we are experiencing in our country. No matter what difficulties we are experiencing in our world. If you have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, God loves you. He is with you. He is for you. He loves you. God's faithfulness and His faithfulness, verse 5, to all generations should motivate us to worship. Will God ever give up on you if you are His child? No. He's faithful. He's faithful. People come and go, beloved. Kingdoms come and go. Rulers rise. Rulers fall. Nations come. Nations fall. Promises are made and often not kept. Expectations don't come to pass. So often in our lives, life is full of disappointments and brokenness. And even we ourselves who are people in Christ are often so unfaithful to the Lord and we don't obey Him, really believing that He's after our good, right? We are faithless so often. But listen to me, in the midst of it all, of a changing world and society, God remains faithful. His faithfulness to all generations is so true. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He, God, remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Why? Because He's faithful. He will never go back on His promises. That's why we love to sing. Great is thy faithfulness, don't we? It's one of my top ten hymns. I love that hymn. We sang it at our wedding close to 20 years ago or 19 years ago now. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Love that refrain, don't you? He's faithful to us. Psalm 37, verse 25 says, I once was young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. I love that. I love that. How many of you can attest to that who are older this morning? Amen? That God has never forsaken you. Who God is and what He's done for us, beloved, compels us to grateful worship. And so I want you to take note, our worship is not to be forced or coerced. We are not to just come and worship God out of mere obligation in an insincere fashion or merely externalistically. Our melody is stirred by our constant memory of who God is and what He's done in each of our lives. So beloved, for some of you, why so silent with your praises? Privately and corporately. Your praises are a mere whisper. Is that what God deserves in the light of the fact that He saved you if you are a believer? Why are your lips shut to praising God? Why are you not adoring Him and admiring Him and speaking of Him in a way that exalts His great name? For others of us, have we forgotten where we came from? Have we forgotten what God has done in our lives even in the light of the fact that we were such great sinners? Have you forgotten about your days of immorality and impurity? 
of exploiting people? Have you forgotten about the fact that you were a lover of sex? It didn't matter who you brought down and who you hurt in that lifestyle of immorality. Have you forgotten about your slanderous, gossiping ways? I used to bring people down and tear people down with your words. Have you forgotten about the fact that you used to trust in your works? Thinking that because you kept all of the rules and laws on the outside, and you were moral, quote-unquote, that somehow, apart from Christ, that gained you some favor with God. Have you forgotten about that kind of wickedness? Some of us have forgotten about where God has saved us from. And beloved, please hear me. I'm not re- reminding you of these, these, these things to numb you or to, or to paralyze you, but simply to remind us, of Paul, as Paul so often does in his epistles, to remind us of where we've come from so that we would be reminded of how unworthy we are of God's grace and goodness and how good God has been to us, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you in all of these wickedness, Paul says. But you were, what? Justified, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Oh, God's goodness is seen most potently in our salvation, isn't it? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 puts it this way. We were at, the, at one time helpless. We were ungodly. And at the right time, Christ died for each of us who were ungodly. We were helpless, beloved. We could not do anything to please the Lord. Even our legalism didn't please the Lord. Or our libertarianism didn't please the Lord. We were lawbreakers. We could not get up from our desperate condition. We needed God to to perform a rescue operation, and indeed He did, didn't He? Have you forgotten about that? Have you forgotten about your hopelessness and the fact that you and I, beloved, spiritually speaking, we were fatherless, fatherless. But according to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we have been adopted into God's family. We have been given the spirit of God by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We are God's children, God's family. Let God's goodness, beloved, and reflecting upon where he has saved you from, motivate you to worship and to give him thanks. That's what he gets at in verse 4. Notice, enter his gates with thanksgiving. <laughs> that word, that Fraser, with thanksgiving, signifies that when we enter the presence of corporate worship, we are to do it with an enthusiastic, glowing report of God's grace in our lives. Think about that. We are to testify concerning the goodness of God to one another. We are to, verse 4, give thanks to God, to bless His name. To bless means to show gratitude and respect for God. It's a, it's a public praise that enhances the Lord in the minds of people. Think about that. Do you speak about God to other people in a way that exalts His great name, that elevates people's view of who the Lord is and what He's done? How many of us speak to others about the Lord this way? You know where that comes from? Love for the Lord. If you lack love for God, you will very seldom speak about Him. If you lack appreciation or gratitude for what God has done in your life, seldom will we ever hear praises coming out of your mouth towards the Lord. But when you love God, you will speak about Him. 
I used to travel with a, with a team of brothers to other foreign countries. And one of the things that they, that they hated me for, in a loving, brotherly kind of hateful way, was that oftentimes, and, I, and, I, and I, I didn't realize this until somebody cracked a joke on one of these trips about it. Dude, you're always talking about your wife, that you miss her, and you can't wait to go back with your wife. Oh, my goodness, shut up already. They said that in a sanctified kind of way. But I love my wife. I love my wife. And isn't that so normal for us? When we love someone, we want to speak about them. And we want to talk to others about them. How much more, beloved God? Because we love Him, we want to tell people about His greatness and His goodness. Listen to me. God has saved you, if you are a believer, so that you would live to tell about His grace. You are on mission to tell people about His excellencies here on this earth. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Here it is. Here is the ultimate purpose of salvation right here. So that you, Christian, may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Bam! That's it right there. Glorifying God is the purpose for our existence, and that is why He has saved us, and we have the privilege beyond this world to do that forever and ever and ever because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We will be glorifying God in sinless perfection, unhindered one day. Wow. Talk about motivation for evangelism. Here it is. Look at what God has done in your life. He has loved you and chosen you and been gracious to you. He's made you his own, made you, giving you royal status. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And the more that this grips you, the goodness of God and his grace in Christ, then you can't help but to testify of the goodness and the graciousness of God, right? That's some serious motivation for evangelism right there. Gratitude. Gratitude. C.H. Spurgeon says this, quote, Gratitude is that oil which makes the wheels of life revolve easily. And if anybody ought to be grateful, surely we are the men and women for whom the Lord has done so much. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his court with praise, end quote. Gratitude motivates worship. The memory of the goodness of God, beloved, should stir melody in our hearts, leading to exuberant worship and praises. Amen? Are you thankful for who God is and what He's done this morning? Are you grateful? The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18 that in everything we should give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for you in Christ Jesus? That you would be a grateful worshiper. Is grateful worship characteristic of you? Do you serve the Lord out of a heart of gratitude because you love Him? Do you gather with others for corporate worship or small groups and you are speaking of the wonderful excellencies of God in those small groups? Are you chomping at the bits to be here on Sunday mornings because you cannot wait to gather with the corporate people, the, 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 corporate, uh, the, the corporate body, and worship with exuberance because of who God is and what He's done? Does that characterize us, beloved? 
We need to remember that God wants worshipers before he wants workers. And that the only acceptable workers are those who have learned and are learning by the grace of God the art of worship. Amen? Let's pray together. And then my brother Ian's going to come on up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are a great and good God. Oh Lord, one measly sermon or thousands of sermons can never tell the full story of your majesty and who you are. Father, I pray that we would be people on mission to, to, that would live to tell of your excellencies and of your majesty. That we would do that by our example in the way that we live with joy and gladness. And that we would do that in the way that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.